Hey everybody, welcome back to Millennial History. Today we're starting part one of two parts centered around the conflict in Northern Ireland called the Troubles. Let's jump in. I mean, I just find it really interesting. <laughs> Here. This is the talk about everything. Because there's just so much to talk about. Prove ourselves worthy of the majority. Millennial History. Welcome to Millennial History. In this podcast, we talk to millennials who lived big events in recent world history from up close. In this episode, we meet Chris, Agnes and Michael. They all grew up in Ireland and Northern Ireland during the final years of the Troubles. Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. The Republic of Ireland is its own country. The Troubles is a name for the long and messy conflict that played out mostly in Northern Ireland. There were two camps. Those who wanted to see Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland united. They were mostly Catholic. And those who wanted Northern Ireland to remain part of the UK. They were mostly Protestant. Michael grew up in a border town in a Catholic family. Chris in Northern Ireland in a Protestant family. And Agnes in between these cultures in both Ireland and Northern Ireland. The conflict has very deep roots and touches all of life. That's why we've made two episodes. This is part one. On a sense of danger, colonialism and community. Here's what you can expect. You never really got nice things in the North, maybe, in those days when the conflict was happening and what nice things you did have maybe got blew up. There's a different sense of danger. Like I some, yeah, I said it to you already. I sometimes feel like people haven't got a clue what actual danger is, you know, worried about all these little things of safety. I'm thinking, come on, guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 danger is something else. You know, we're still very much in the margins of extremely safe. Sometimes when people talk about the European Union and the idea of, you know, the, the preservation of peace for 70 years or, you know, whatever like that, you kind, of, you kind of think, well, that's only if you're content to think of Europe as France, Germany, you know, of, you know a couple of just centralised states. Yeah, comfortable with contradictions, I think, is a good thing that people from the North have. Because I think you run into contradictions all the time, like you have one set of values, but then you have to act in a different way. My name is Andrea Voets. I am a musical journalist. I'm joined in the studio by composer and sound designer Luke Dean. And all of the music that you will hear has been offered by musicians from Northern Ireland and Ireland. There's a thing in Northern Ireland you say, right? When you see someone, right, right, right. Like you're saying, all right, it's all right, you're all right, we're all right. So like in a time of danger, you see someone, you walk towards them and you go, right? And it's worth saying, it's okay, we're, we're friends, there's no problem. So there's a lot of reassurance or something. How are you? Hiya. Are you okay, darling? You know, there you go, dear. Have a love, you know, just really like, even if it's a very small interaction, there's like, there's care in it. It's just a part of the way of life there, you know, like people people check in on one another. I think it's a very Irish thing though, like people just check in on one another and make sure their neighbours are okay and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that part of Irish culture sticks. There's a part of me that opens up when I'm in Ireland that uh, isn't really as open when I'm abroad. There's the word in Irish, mahal, which kind of, you know, sort of means that coming together of people. Um, that 
that felt an awful lot more present at times when people didn't have access to, you know, a lot of resources. And that wasn't broken by the conflict? I don't think so. It actually, like, makes it stronger to a certain extent, especially when, like, bad things happen, you know, people also rally together. There's less money, less opportunity, um, but then, you know, less of kind of a business way of looking at life, much more just a human way. I think that traditionally Irish culture was something that was very held conversation really at the centre. You know, small gatherings of people, like there would have been a real sense of the importance just of conversation that doesn't have any particular goal in mind. There's a real warmth. Northern Irish people, like really, really is, people are very warm and it's very, very human. The situation during the troubles was complex. There were many guns, a lot of police, soldiers, bombs, attacks, you name it. The British Army was stationed in Northern Ireland from 1969 until 2007. And there were many Protestant and Catholic paramilitary groups active as well, like the UVF and the IRA. The army had uniforms. The paramilitary operated anonymously and underground. The conflict affected everyone who lived in the north and around the border in various ways. My grandmother lives in a really nice house that looks over, overlooks a field and I definitely remember seeing um, army helicopters land in that field and army men jumping out of bushes and stuff while they were doing routines and searches around the area. You saw the soldiers as well. like. I up the, up the hill, you know, with kind of sandbag forts, little mini forts they made for themselves. There was an Irish army barracks just over the, you know, really over the road from my house, and then a British army barracks across McGlen. So there were constantly helicopters flying through the sky and constantly helicopters flying over, you know, in a way that I thought was brilliant. You know, I, like I loved helicopters, you know, and I loved the sound of them. And, you know, um, I can remember even being really small and kind of making, learning how to make different types of helicopter sounds, you know, with my mouth. Like I can do like the sort of like that kind of thing, you know. You know, on the high street that I lived, you'd have the police patrolling and they'd be in twos or in fours or in sixes, you know, opposite each other walking down the two different sides of the streets. Actually, they maybe even would be in twelves. There was just a sense of the normality of that and I suppose you grow up into that and you know it just feels normal. Further up the street again two sets of two on either side of the street and maybe even beyond that again and they'd have big guns they had mach- I think they were machine guns <laughs> they're big guns and that did not feel good I did not like those guns around at all that felt really crap In the years around the Paris attacks there was a high, much increased police and army presence on the streets and um, it was one of the first times that I had been around people carrying rifles again in the way that I was all the time as a child Um, Do I have to explain the troubles? Yeah, I guess I do sometimes. Usually I'll just say you know, very quick summary in 30 seconds of the whole history of um, Ireland which is um, the Brits came in they took the land, the Irish tried to take it back, but the North remained part of the UK and that caused a lot of problems to happen. Yeah, that's sort of what it is, right? You know, it's like, it's imperialism and colonialism and that's sort of where the, that's where the problems are. I mean, that's a very reductionist sort of way of describing mm-hmm. a very, very, very complicated history. I guess it was the army, but that they were like a, you know, a very serious authority that you you really could not mess with. 
like you had to be very careful. The British army was stationed in Northern Ireland to make sure that Northern Ireland would remain part of the UK. That meant that soldiers would be sent on tour to Northern Ireland. The first day I went into town, which is, means into Belfast, with my two younger brothers, we went Christmas shopping and I took them, so I was, I'm going to say 13, 14, something like that. So I was old enough to take the two boys in, and I can remember the road we were walking down and uh, um, soldiers drove past. You'd have, I think, six soldiers um, hanging out of the roof, you know, standing up with a massive gun. And I guess a soldier is trained to um, uh, uh, point the gun where they're looking. The guns were also pointed at, at me as they drove along. And I just really remember that feeling, you know, so there's this kind of mix of the masculinity of it as well and of being like a young woman, you know, turning or whatever, going through puberty and also like the threat of the gun, even though they weren't going to shoot me, obviously they were just lazily looking as they drove. I'm sure I wasn't posing a threat, but that kind of feeling of being a target somehow um, when you're just trying to take your brothers to do some Christmas shopping. So I remember feeling really vulnerable in that. I do remember as well a British Army officer who actually was very, who had stood out because of his friendliness being killed by a sniper. It was the fact of him being friendly or not kind of, you know, wasn't going to be relevant, yeah. But anyway, the story is my mother pulls up behind a, um, a soldier to ask him for directions and she said she was so shocked because he spun round, you know, with his gun, with a look of total fear on his face. And she really got some insight into their lives as well because um, the soldiers really did feel like they were on enemy territory. It was, it was dangerous for them, and they, I think they really did hate us. Like, I felt like they hated us. I felt like they thought we were, um, I don't know. I felt like if they looked at you, they thought, stupid little Irish bitch, she's probably, you know, she could kill us. There's a different sense of danger. I sometimes feel like people haven't got a clue what actual danger is, you know, worried about all these little things of safety. I'm thinking, come on, guys. <laughs> it's, 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 it, danger is something else, you know. We're still very much in the margins of extremely safe. It was the week of before Christmas, I think. Um, the IRA came and they left a, a suspicious device outside and my grandfather found it seeing what it was and carefully picked it up, walked it across the street, dropped it, ducked behind the wall and the bomb went off and blew up. Um, <clears throat> so that was that bomb taken care of that year. The next year, it's the week of Christmas, the phone rings and it's somebody on another line and they say, you'll find it a lot harder to get rid of this one. Um, and then uh, they all basically evacuate the house, and they stand outside and then the bomb goes off and the shop goes up in flames, the house, and obviously it's Christmas Eve, so there's like all the Christmas presents and like basically my grandfather, my great grandfather's whole house and his home um, goes up in flames. And my dad said that actually like that was the best thing that ever happened to my great grandfather because he had obviously had insured the building um, and he was in his 50s at the time, so 
when the bomb went off, um, he got his insurance money and it meant that he never had to work again. <laughs> he, spent the, he spent the rest of his life fishing and spent time with his grandchildren and he was pretty happy about that actually, you know, like he lost a lot, but like he also like got an early retirement out of that bomb going off. Like there was um, a gun factory found next to our house, basically. This, our neighbor had been building Sound. guns. Yeah, our neighbour had been building guns in his garage. It was hilarious because I had a friend of mine from Germany visiting, so his mother hadn't let him come to visit me for a long time because Northern Ireland was so dangerous, and I'd like said, ha, 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 ha. People, you know, don't get shot in Northern Ireland, you know? It's, it's not that. You're misunderstanding. So then he was finally allowed to visit. He came to visit. We went for a walk down the beach. We came back, and there were all these guns on the lawn. My neighbor's house, like 42 guns or something, that had been smuggled in and then built. And it was police everywhere, army everywhere. It was completely mental. The bomb under the house and the gun factory are examples of paramilitary actions in Northern Ireland. The secret nature of these organizations made the trouble so complex. So paramilitary is not the police? Paramilitary is grassroots military organization. It's basically just a collection of individuals who believe in a certain thing. Fighting for? Fighting for freedom. Fighting for what they think is right. Yeah. And would there be anti-Catholics and Protestant paramilitary groups? Yeah, several of both. Yeah, it's a lot more fluid than it's not. They're not an institutional, like agency, and in the way that the army would be, for example. And know. that also means that you never know who is part of it and who is not. Yeah, sure. Yeah, unless they tell you. Yeah. <laughs> you could also say they're just called terrorist groups because they aren't a state-run group. You know, and that is that for me is just a fact. You know, so an army, you know, we can say the, these terrorist groups kill so and so many people, but armies also kill people, you know. But it's just state run, and maybe it's not terror in the sense that it has a certain level of organization, but in a war situation, I'm sure they just kill people, you know, and they bomb people and they take people out unexpectedly and. and they keep the peace, you know, peacekeeping troops going to different countries and I'm sure it will feel very like the British Army felt like in Northern Ireland where they're looking at you as a potential terrorist, as a threat, as danger and as somehow as a piece of shit. That was a very strong feeling I had as a young woman growing up. I was like, <laughs> you just think of me as some little wee Irish whore or something? Like, that's what it felt like, a bit. They were keeping control because there, because there was this paramilitary situation where there's these criminal groups, paramilitaries who, um, you know, had a lot of authority in different communities, you know, of, of, of both sides. Um, so I guess it was like um, the sort of feeling was, you know, Northern Irish people aren't able to look after themselves, so they need to be looked after <laughs> by by the army. I do remember even seeing kind of reports on the Gulf War as a teenager and these, you know, occupied territories. And, you know, suddenly thinking, well, you know, up until 1998, that's what Northern Ireland was. It was like an occupied ter territory that, you know, the British Army were, were manning and running the place. Um, and that's not, 
normal, you know, but to me it was normal. Growing up in Ireland, there is this evidence of a colonial past, and the British Army were part of that colonial present then, you know? But Ireland was a, a colony. colony. was a British colony, yeah. So Ireland was colonised by the British. Ireland was a colony, you know, it kind of... Um, there was a point, certainly, where it existed as, you know, basically for, for the export of foods. It's not just the troubles, you know, it goes back a very long way. It doesn't even go that back that far until you reach the biggest atrocity. Like, I don't know how many people died in the troubles, 5,000? Something like Something that. Something like that, 5,000-ish. Um, but, but, like, but, like, the, the Irish famine was actually the biggest killer of all. I had a British, uh, an English friend, very posh English friend when I was living in Paris who I used to make buy me chips on the way home um, in as an apology for the famine, the potato famine. Um, so I would have this thing where he was a lovely guy and very, very polite. And like, I don't, I'm not even sure if he got the joke. I used to, when we'd be passing a chip, where I'd be like, you know, I just, I think you should buy me the chips really. Like, you know, after, uh, you know, after, you know, making my people eat nothing but potatoes for <laughs> hundreds of years. Um, so nobody really had access to property and you know like very very few people of the you know say the, the Gaelic indigenous population had the you know had the right to own property um, and so say for people of my you know my parents generation my parents were born in the 40s and um, you know owner owning land would have been considered the the ultimate stability. Prior to that, you've got you know hundreds of years, you know, where, where their, you know, certainly their grandparents and all of the generations prior to that would have been living, you know, completely under the conditions imposed by a foreign landlord. So when I lived in Southern Ireland, we lived in, on an Anglo-Irish estate. So we lived in the gardener's cottage, which is like a worker's position, on this huge estate with a massive stately home. And they were what you call Anglo-Irish. So they may have lived in Ireland for some generations, but they were English. They saw themselves as English and spoke with English accents. And there, they were this old couple and one of their children was married to an English, you know, he was called David and he was married to an English woman called Julia and she went to England to have her baby so they would be born in England. You know, they, they owned the whole little village there, like they rented it, people had like 100 year leases and stuff. Um, so that was left over the colonial past, you know, that was the English owned the property um, in that village anyway. Catholics were discriminated against um, with regards to like housing and unemployment and things like that. So did that mean that in the Northern Irish society you had a stronger position if you were Protestant? Uh, yeah, you did. Still. No question. Still? And still do, yeah, to a certain extent. There still is like discrimination that goes on in certain situations, yeah, for sure. Irish language was suppressed, so people it became illegal for people to learn Irish in schools and all of that for a long, 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 long time. My brother worked in finance in London for years. His accent changed, like, you know, as in he kind of developed, you know, a strong enough um, English accent. And because I do have friends who have done that and who have done it because of 
uh, an attempt to be accepted within a new milieu that they've moved into. It was an Irish, um, I, th- I think it might have been a comedian that uh, was in an interview, but in a serious interview talking about how he never felt that he could have got beyond the sense that people thought that he was there to paint their houses. Um, you know, uh, and this would have been in the kind of the 80s, 90s. When I went over to study, people weren't nasty to me, but people, I, I sensed, because to them I had an Irish accent in England, so I, they considered me Irish. They were kind of thought I was kind of sweet, but not to be taken serious or something. So I can remember like quite deliberately. But to try and get a more English accent or something so that I could just ha- like have a, more of a debate. The thing that always shocked me about Britain is how little they learn about Irish history, you know, about their history as an empire in general. Like, the, the narrative is very much around adventure and bringing education to the world and discovery, and it's, it, like, it's kind of told a little bit like, a, you know, like Moby Dick. I thought about it a bit more, and then I was like, oh yeah, the North, it still is colonial. How does that show? Uh, that we're being dragged into Brexit when we didn't vote for it. That's the perfect example, you know, like, we have our own government, default government, we made our own vote, and the majority said, we want to stay in the EU, and we're still being forced out. Because of the colonialist past that Northern Ireland has and still deals with, we're being dragged into, like, a very weird and fucked up situation with Brexit, and it's going to take a while to fix. So, and nobody really, and nobody really understands how to fix it. And nobody really understands how to fix it because nobody ever really bothered considering the problem to begin with when they proposed the referendum. That's because colonialism still, you know, pervades, you know. Because Westminster can decide for you. Yeah, exactly. Westminster have the last say. Whether it's uh, a willing sort of amnesia or solipsism um, or an actual just lack of knowledge about their own history. You put a border there and then, you know, you the border post gets vandalised and then you put, like, some security guards there and then, you know, security guards get kidnapped or something, you know, and then all of a sudden you kind of go, well, we'll put police officers there and then somebody shoots a police officer and, you know, I mean, you, like, it's those kind of things... Maybe maybe that's naive of me, but, you know, I, like, there is a part of me that just feels, well, like, it was so bad, you know, that's really... Who, who would consciously allow that to happen again? You know, we're your fucking problem. You, you just, like, would wish that people would be more informed about that sort of stuff. Give yourself to the arrow. Give yourself to the spark. Give yourself to peace and love and things that break your heart. Give yourself to the earth. Give yourself to the sun Give yourself to everything That makes you want to run Do people here, being outside of Ireland, ever ask you about this history? I think it's a little bit too long ago almost or something. To be able to just get on with others and step beyond the history of the Troubles it was necessary for all of my friendship groups to just ignore it, kind of forget it, pretend it's not there and just talk. But that means that your um, conversations can be limited. You know, there's a depth you might not go. <laughs> Give yourself to 
I would get the sense of there being a lot of things that are not spoken about, but I would also feel that there's a very, very strong community ethic. When I go back to Northern Ireland, I can often just cry at the warmth of someone in the shop. You know? Like, you know, two years ago I went to do my Christmas shopping and it was... And, you know, the lady I was in the shop was about one o'clock on a Sunday. And the lady said, do you want to just leave your bags here? You know, that kind of thing, that somebody in the shop on a busy day will just think about this person, look, think, oh, how can I make her day better? And that kind of thing goes in everything, you know? People want to have a nice time together, do have a nice time together. There was, like, a real sense of community there. We're like, even despite those identity differences, people would look after one another, you know, like, and people would share the jobs. You know, like, if you had to go away for a few days, they would look after your farm and milk your cattle and stuff like that, you know? So, you know, there's, like... Even though there was all this conflict, maybe that family would have known who shot your son. And maybe the other family knew you knew who shot your son, for example. You know, there would still be a sense of community there and people would look after one another in those situations as well. But like, resources are so thin in the countryside that you have to do that. You have to be good to other people because otherwise you've got nobody. Comfortable with contradictions, I think, is a good thing that people from the North have. Yeah, because I think you run into contradictions all the time. Like, you have one set of values, but then you have to act in a different way. Because maybe you have to work alongside someone that you politically don't agree with. You also have to work alongside and live with, to a certain extent. You can just let it be. You know, it doesn't need to be rectified and it doesn't need to be sorted out. Like, it just that's just how life is. Um, and that's okay and it doesn't it shouldn't affect how you live you can still be a good person when you when you can give yourself to faith and hope and soon you will make your mark people want to change things and people have heart and passion and fire you know it sounds also like there was a sort of intensity that comes to life that you almost don't I don't think I've known that because life was just life and there was nothing to there was nothing at stake that's really that's really observant of you yeah because I I, sometimes I am like deeply bored by the passive organized I miss I do miss like that you know that's true I, I appreciate the privilege of living in a society that's so easy and regulated and peaceful and free. But I also sometimes think, come on, let's have a riot. Like, it's not, you know, I want something. I mean, I also just went down to my local pub and it was amazing. Like, the yeah. pub was amazing. <laughs> Go there every Friday night and I went quite late. People would be building up the night the whole night and it would, and it would stay open late and it was... It was a total party and people, everyone would take care, you know, people would take care of you, people would ask you about your sisters, they'd ask you about your brother, they'd ask you about this, they'd ask you, you know, everyone would be like, and it's multi-generational, that's the nice thing about Irish pubs is, you know, you've got, you've got everyone in there together, so people would help each other in that sense of, like, you know, you'd be being brought up by everybody. Um, so they were totally, like, all of that was brilliant. And, like, it wasn't there that I ever, was worried about who was Catholic or Protestant in the pub.
This show was brought to you by Resonate Productions. We make musical journalism about emotional blind spots in society. Many thanks to all the musicians who gave us their songs. Kuik, Grossnet, Junk Drawer, Darry Farewell, The Olem, Kira O'Neill and Documenta. You can find all of them on facebook.com slash musicaljournalism. In the next episode, Chris, Agnes and Michael will help us understand what it means to live in a country divided by identity politics and how to move forward from a place of trouble. See you next time.